Hey everybody, my name is Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio. So before we get started, I wanted to encourage you guys to go listen to the previous episode if you haven't listened to it because it's not doing as well as not the cyberpunk episode certainly, but because cyberpunk episode is like a freak of nature and people you guys are still listening to it, but if you haven't heard the episode all about Remake Our Lives, I really want to encourage you guys to go listen to that because I'm pretty proud of my thoughts on that and just the conversation I have with that show in my head about the creative process and like the monetization of the creative process. So definitely go check that episode out when you get a chance. But for this episode, we are doing something because we're like a weird place, at least for me in the season where one of the things I really want to cover is not done in the way that I'm watching it, which is the English dub version because I feel like being lazy. Um, and the, and it's like a space where like it will be done, but not until the next Thursday edition. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to, you know, whip out my editing bay and we're going to do a some a little something we haven't done in a while. And that is a Lunchbox Rewind. And if you're not familiar with what that is, Lunchbox Rewind is where I take another look at a show I've looked at previously. And in this case, that show is from 2006 and it's called... Air Gear.
So before we get into air gear proper, I want to take some time to do a little bit of like industry, to do a little bit of an industry explanation that might seem a little out of place, but I promise there's a point to it. So just stick with me here. When, and if you, and if you know anything about Air Gear's author, you kind of know, you probably know what I'm about to do, but it's an interesting thing and it's necessary to his future work from that, from beyond that point. So I just want to take you through it pretty quickly. When Ograte, the author of Air Gear, started, he started as a arrow manga author. And if you don't know what arrow manga is, or H manga is, it is a pornographic manga. <laughs> and the kind of format of that kind of manga, because it it ha it has a specific job to do in that it's supposed to titillate the audience and like gives them material to jerk it to, to crank it to. Um, it doesn't tend to focus on story, and typically because, but also typically because of the lack of ability to hide the imperfections in your anatomical skill because. Everybody's going to have to be naked at some point. Aramanga authors, who oftentimes both write and draw their own work, are incredibly talented artists. They just are. No matter how depraved the thing they're depicting is, they are, like, beyond talented artists. Because there's no... Like, you can't hide... You can't, can't hide a hand in a pocket. You can't hide... Uh, you can't hide toes in a shoe. Like, it's all there all the time. And yes, there's, like, good and bad-looking hentai manga, but for the most part, like, the bar is pretty high. And you can see this going forward with um, things like Food Wars. The original art, the artist for Food Wars originally was a arrow manga artist. And he teamed up with the writer for Food Wars to do that to do that original manga. And that's why that thing looks so on point. So utterly gorgeous. It's also why it has a kind of like fetish aspect to it. If that makes any sense. I mean, certainly with Food Wars. Um, also, aspects of, of, of era manga, like writing conventions and character design can be found in stuff like Uzaki-chan or um, Teasing Master from a couple years ago. A lot of those, like, this girl is torturing this guy, but they love each other, that stuff is based on archetypes established largely in fetish, in the fetish and arrow manga-like sphere, if, if you will. And... Even something like Monster Musume from a handful of years ago, um, which was very popular, that artist straight up just makes arrow, just makes hentai manga with characters that are like one for one. Like he doesn't name them the same thing, although the main character of that manga has no actual name, which I always find is like an incredible evolution of the convention of the self-insert character. 
but it's literally one for one. And oftentimes, that's not uncommon for etchy manga authors, and that is certainly true of Ograte. But even now, hentai manga struggles with the story aspect because that's really not what it's there to do. And oftentimes, if you've ever read a hentai manga volume, it's more like an anthology of like these, all of these stories are connected by either like art style or one specific thing, but they don't necessarily um, run all the way through with one story. And yes, there are a handful of those, but by and large, the more popular thing is the anthology style, so you can tell a bunch of stories with a bunch of characters, each of which like rings someone's bell in a different way, and like you have a wider audience for your porn book. And what that ends up meaning is that you have very few moments in you've not vanishingly few, but but the minority of hentai manga are like serialized stories that you follow all the way through. And even the ones that are serialized stories that you follow all the way through, they are very much episodic. Like even if they are the same setting every time, it's pretty like everything is explained to you up front all the time. Um, one of the few ones that I can think of that doesn't do this is a very old hentai manga from the early 2000s called um, Slut Girl. And it follows the, like, escapades and escapades of this guy who moved to Tokyo from the country and, like, immediately got taken advantage of by a bunch of deeply sexual, deeply willing to fuck for food and money women who, like, come in and out of his life. And it's, it's actually a genuinely funny, fucked up, hilarious manga in its own right. It just happened to also be porn. <laughs> However, kind of the f first signal that Ogre ever sent out that he was going to make more than just H-manga was the H-manga he's most known for. And that is a... a um series called Silky Whip. And I can't even tell you what the story of Silky Whip was. But what I can tell you is that there was a full definitive like set in stone story for that thing. And the story was more important than the romance happening. Like the romance like the romance and the sex in those books happened, but it wasn't what the author was about there. Like, he was not contriving reasons for characters to end up naked and fucking each other. He was contriving stories, like the story, and then that would happen along the way. And that's certainly not anything super unique, but it is, but in the way that it came out in his work, it proved pretty clearly that, like, he wanted something different. That, like, he was okay with doing the, like, super etchy, super erotic art that was, that was and is beautiful. But he wanted something more out of the f 
format than just to titillate people. And lo and behold, a few years, like, after that, he would ultimately go on to pen both um, Tenjo Tenge and Air Gear. And Air Gear's original manga ended, I believe, in 2002. Its anime was released in 2006. So that's a pretty tight turnaround for that kind of stuff. But the thing with Air Gear and the thing with... The thing with both of, um, the thing with Airgear that was unfortunate was that it got, let me look up Tenjo Tenge 10. Um, is that it was all about, it, Airgear is all about movement as a, as like a manga, as the art the art in the manga is all about movement and it's all about quick movement at that. So when he would, so when he made, so when Ograte made Tenjo Tango, which I've also talked about on this podcast, you can definitely go find that episode in the feed. He was very clearly interested in making a really traditional martial arts show, martial arts high school show. And he achieves that pretty well. But what he kind of stumbled onto in that show, which is a little, which is also kind of in the background of Aragir, is he stumbled onto the, the untouchable class as like a group of people in Japan who occupies a very specific but important place and is also very fucked up. Um, but he starts to have that conversation in Tenjo Tenge. And then it's almost like in Aragir, you're coming in at a, like a much later point in his conversation about that in Aragir. And what the kind of problem with animating Ogre's work is, is it's a similar problem to the Issues they always had with JoJo's and Araki's work is that Ogre is such a good art, is such a good illustrator that you cannot you 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 would have to have Akira levels of Akira the movie levels of budget in order to even approach the kinds of things that he does, just as like throwaway panels. Much less the, like, true standout panels that you think of when you think of Air Gear. And there are true, like, beautiful pieces of illustration that are just panels in Air Gear. That are incredible. More incredible than you, like, could imagine if you've never read a a single volume of, of Air Gear. One that comes to mind is it involved a character named Spitfire. It happened pretty early on in the plot when Spitfire kind of introduces himself to the main character, Iki. He does this slide trick that in... Um, in on the page in the manga, it's illustrated by this big, long panel and has this awesome futurist illustration of, ev- of almost every keyframe of movement 
that he does doing this trick. And it's it's beautiful. It's so detailed. Every pose is like completely fleshed out. And it's it's gorgeous. But in order to do that with the animation, they don't really capture it right. They don't really have the like it doesn't it doesn't hit you in the same way. It doesn't it doesn't make you stop and just sit in awe at this one panel. When it be, and they do, dedicate like they do a, they cut around it and it's its own scene and it's it's a great demonstration of this guy means fucking business in the anime, but it doesn't have that same gravity. And overall, I when I decided to cover this, when I decided to do a show, one of the first things I do is I open up um, the my the my, my anime list page for the show, and because every show I'm covering, I have usually watched, and if I've rated, I check out the rating. I rated this anime as very bad. I upgraded it to bad because I I upgraded it from three to four on my anime list, on my my anime list ranking, because I thought that was a little cruel um, of a rating to give Air Gear. Because I think there, I think there are some standout, incredible things about the anime adaptations, and I'll get to that in a second. But the reason why it strikes me as bad is because Ogre is clearly having fun making his man- making his manga, making either Tenger Tenge or Air Gear. And he, in both, he gives, he gives, like, Airgear is 37 volumes long. There is so much story there. And most of that was out by the time they started making the anime. So they, at no point, needed to stretch the story out. And they clearly did. But also they took, like, weird little side moments from the story later on and they brought them forward almost to fill out a 24, 25 episode run because 25 episodes 24 episodes in an OVA but they didn't really need to and my biggest criticism out of anything I'll say here about the um, about the anime adaptation of Air Gear is that they they could have spent more time on the story and they could have gotten farther and they could have gotten farther in less time because when they hit the points that are really interesting and really fascinating, they're fascinating and they're fascinating because this is something incredible that um, that Ograte managed that most great shonen tournament art fighting anime people don't manage. I'm going to use this example kind of intentionally. Um, If you look at something like Yu-Gi-Oh! Yu-Gi-Oh! is insane. Yu-Gi-Oh! is on crack cocaine. (laughs) And part of the reason why Yu-Gi-Oh! is on crack cocaine is because it started out, like originally Yu-Gi-Oh! started out as a bunch of teenage gambling addicts trying to figure out what they, like, how they could raise the stakes every time. And then the original author, God rest his soul, he recently passed away, um, stumbled onto the card concept. And once he had the card concept, 
everything kind of slid into place, and that became the the deal. But like early Yu-Gi-Oh is filled with like bomb threats and like fucked up saw scenarios and all this stuff that is incredible. That but also feels like a real threat. And once he had the cart, but once Yu-Gi-Oh had the cards thrown in. You kind of got to start to go to a suspension of disbelief scenario to get to, like, Game Kingdom Islands and Kaiba and fucking dual city, the Dual City Tournament and all of this other insane madness that they get to in that show because nothing about playing a card game is very threatening to a child. And nothing about Seto Kaiba being obsessed with dual monsters is in any way realistic. Like, I, unless we get to the point where there are a bunch of millennial billionaires and we're all into Pokemon cards again. That's when it will get really fucking weird in the world. But there's a suspension of disbelief because, like, by the... By you, by Yu-Gi-Oh! 5Ds, there are motorcycle playing, playing trading card games. It's insane. That would never happen, or maybe it will, but more than likely, it would never happen. And the problem there, and the problem with a lot of the Yu-Gi-Oh!, the Bakugan, the card fight Vanguard kind of thing. Is they require they require the mystical element in order to make it dangerous. That's what it is. Playing a card game against the guy who inv- against the guy who invented the card game is not inherently dangerous. You're probably not going to win, but it's not inherently dangerous. But if he has a magical eye that will steal your soul in it when you lose, it is. So that's what they did. Whereas Ogre, when he sat down and he came up with, he didn't quite come up with, like, ATs and Storm Riders and that stuff. We'll get to that in a second. But when he decided to create this story, he used something that is inherently dangerous. He used something, and he demonstrates that early on in the story. And you see it early on, um, about uh, halfway through the anime. And that air gear is about these teeny, this this main character Iki, who discovers his love for this extreme for this extreme sport called that involves these motorized rollerblades called ATs or air tracks. And air tracks are are exactly what they sound like. They're like. If you had a hoverboard, but it was split in two, and there was one on each foot. And they went at, like, breakneck speeds. At, like, speeds that would fuck you up if you ran into something. Not like the kind of slow, meandering hoverboard speeds. Like, the speeds that you don't want a hoverboard to go at. Because if you stop or if you hit something, you're going to die. And what that has evolved into is, like, it has mixed with street culture and, you know, 
techno and house music and all these other cultures become a kind of dominant force in all of those cultures and has created this environment of what they call storm rider teams who are essentially individualized teams who function like gangs and run these competitions with their ATs to impress each other, to beat each other, to like take each other, to like take each other's territory, take each other's spare parts, the whole thing. And that's a real accomplishment because it it creates a danger. It creates a real danger throughout the show of like, oh fuck, he didn't learn how to stop yet. Like, he went too high and now he's falling to his death. And the show, the show and the manga really hammer home like, look yo, this is really dangerous. This is fucked up amounts of dangerous. Don't do this. And so I ended up thinking about a documentary that came out early this year called Until the Wheels Fall Off. Because the closest example I can probably bring, give to real life is riding ATs feels as dangerous as the kind of skateboard stunts that Tony Hawk will still willingly put his body through. Because you're like riding a thing on wheels and like it doesn't really care whether or not you stop. You have to tell it to stop. And you're putting yourself in real physical danger. But the people who love to do this like deeply love it and it's not so much that they do it because they want to it's that they do it because they need to something in them needs this shit in the same way that something in Tony Tony Hawk needs to skateboard and to like push anything with wheels to the absolute limit in the way that he does in one of the like final moments of that um of that document of that documentary which if you haven't seen it and you have access to HBO Max watch that thing it's fascinating he's riding little a little um electric little a little like motorized moped electric bike thing with his daughter and his daughter starts to like stand on the peg bars on the back and he's like can you get your feet on the seat in a way that like you hear him pull back, like, even after he said that and be like, ah, maybe I'm fucked up. Maybe, like, maybe no. Maybe maybe I should be asking my kid, how fast can this motherfucking thing go for real? Maybe I shouldn't be pushing my kid into, like, fucking herself up at the age of nine. <laughs> maybe I have a disease. <laughs> and... The thing that's clear of Iki and a uh, character you meet later, Sora, is that they both need the kind of rush that comes with ATs. And in Sora's case, it, you find out later in the story that Sora, spoiler alert for all of Air Gear, by the way, that Sora was... The, was the previous candidate to become Sky King or like the like King of Kings 
Um, they're like the, the top dog in the Air Gear world. And he had a terrible accident in a comp in a um, match with another team, and he lost use of both of his legs. So, and this is another reason I deeply fucking love not only this show but like Ograte in general because Ograte is really good at like making characters who are disabled, but they are fucking forces of nature. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, he does he does something similar in um in uh, Tenjo Tenge, if I remember correctly. But when you first meet Sora, he's in a wheelchair, and it's revealed that like he can use this wheelchair like at speeds where he can wall climb in a wheelchair, <laughs> and it's like it's. At one point, the suspension of disbelief you have to have to get there. But the other point, it demonstrates this, like, that fire in him, that, like, need to be able to do this stuff never went away. He just doesn't have, like, a use for it, if that makes any sense. And in those moments, you start to see in Iki, he has that same fire. He has that same like need it is not a want it is a need and none of the adults around him least of all Rika his like adopted older sister who deeply cares for him and deeply loves him also loves also loves Sora and saw when they were when they were about Iki's age what happened to Sora when he tried what Iki is clearly running towards in terms of the story is that he he she doesn't get it she like she doesn't see it until she's forced to see that like no this kid needs this like he needs it in a way that I never did that anybody that most other people ever will and that's really hard to understand. And, and, but she also remembers, like, I remember when I was a kid and I needed this. And then something terrible happened and I needed something else. And if there is a general flaw in... I'm not just going to say Air Gear, but like most shonen stories in the style of Air Gear or even Tenjo Tenge, it's that there is a past that no one is, that no one is willing to just sit down and explain to the main character of the show. And in this show's like deal... There's a whole architecture around Iki that's closing in on him that nobody, nobody in the show is like, hey, bud, let's, let's take a drive. Let's take a ride. Let's take a walk. And I'm just going to just line up all the acorns here for you so you can see what you're walking into. You can see the deal. You can see what what's up. And you can at least know. 
everybody in the show is like, no, I, I promised I wouldn't talk about it. And it's just like, no. You want this kid to, like, survive, not just survive, but thrive. Better start talking, bitches. Come on. And it... And that really comes to light, early, like, when you're approaching the middle of the show. Because there's a, there's a moment where um, Rika, the oldest of the kind of five of the of the of the household um four of them are form up form the new sleeping forest and iki has his own storm rider team called kogarathamaru ultimately but um there's iki rika ringo who is a, like a love interest for iki and uh, a young and the youngest one is named ume and ume is just there to be creepy and funny and it's hilarious and and get super high off shrooms and make a fucking rocket car in their garage. Or living room, it's not clear. Um, but they all go to a... They, like, Rika is keeping it a secret that doesn't need to be kept. In the form that she is a pro wrestler. And she goes missing for months at a time because she's on tour. And at some point, all the girls go see Rika as a pro wrestler. And they just leave Iki at home like assholes. And, like, yeah, Iki is like a pervy weirdo. But, like, wouldn't he like to be proud of his older sister in the same way? Wouldn't he like to cheer for her? Wouldn't he think that was cool as fuck? And wouldn't he get into less trouble if he was at a pro wrestling match instead of... Wandering the streets. And... The show... Lots of these shows necessarily treat their main characters like they can't know the big evil thing. Like they can't know all, the entire the entire backstory of the world. Because that's what's necessary to keep them going. And it also... It keeps you invested as a watcher or reader because you're learning it at the same time that the main character learns it. So it's actually a narrative device to explain what the fuck is happening to the reader or viewer. And that's kind of, But, like, the way they do it, handle it in air gear, I think, is especially egregious. But that's me. But... What they do with kind of the extreme sports aspect of air gear is is really interesting. But the extreme sport of air gear of air tracks is not does not belong to air gear. It belongs to a little franchise called Jet Set Radio. And if you don't know what Jet Set Radio is, Jet Set Radio is this video game franchise that is about the same thing and it has it shares a lot of DNA with Air Gear. And if you Ogre has been asked and he said, Absolutely, I designed this around the aesthetic and look and feel of Jet Set Radio. So if you've never played it, Jet Set Radio is a is a skating game where you are a bunch of kids, um, and you have these motor motorized 
roller rollerblades or roller skates. And the goal is to complete a course, do a bunch of tricks, put your put your um team's emblem uh, or um logo everywhere you can before the cops and not get caught by the cops. And it, Jet Set Radio is like a watershed game in the in the industry because it looks like very few other things and it's got such a vibe that kind of the only other place to get that vibe is this property, is Air Gear. And they are both very related and like I said, if you ask Oh Great, Oh Great very much just will tell you, hey, I really dig Jet Set Radio, so I want to make something that was so clearly a like spiritual successor of that, like set in that same concept. And this is what I came up with. Only unlike Jet Set Radio, which is a sports which is a video which is a sports video game, um Air Gear can be so much more expansive because it can run because it's run for thirty seven volumes or even the twenty five episode um series plus a later OVA that I think is four episodes um, that covers some later chapters in the manga. Um, it's called, I believe it's called, um, like, it's Air Gear Break, Break on the Sky, and it covers, I think, chapter six, it covers the 16th chapter of the manga, which is significantly later, and it involves significantly different characters. It involves... A lot of the same characters, but significantly different characters. And so here's where I want to talk about what I love about the Air Gear manga and what I love about what the anime brought to the table for the Air Gear manga. So one of the things that many people do after they finish Fully Cooly is they go seek out the Fooly Cooly manga. And there's something missing from the Fooly Cooly manga. There's like a... It's got the same vibe. It's basically the same story. But there's just something missing from it. And that is... The soundtrack of Fooly Cooly. And if you know anything about Fooly Cooly, about FLCL, you know that soundtrack. Even the, like when they announced the new the two new FLCL series that they released that were pretty poorly received, the one thing everybody said is like, yeah, but they got the pillows back and they made some more bangers. So I guess this is okay. <laughs> and in Jet Set Radio, the music is a huge part of the vibe of that game. So, ergo, when the anime for... Air Gear was conceived, the music was that they created for it. It's kind of unlike much else in anime. It is part it is part like rock and roll. It is part hip hop. It is part techno. It's all funk and it's fucking great. It's just fucking great. And where they choose to put that music and what, how they choose to use that music is 
like incredible. They use a specific like piece of music for the for the uh, for the eye catches around commercials that are great. They use specific pieces of music for like specific tones and specific scenes to establish specific tones. They're even though they seem a little bit awkward in the way that they like weave in and out of each other, it still works. If I could give you any, if I could give you any example, if you've ever seen the first Suicide Squad movie, which you know. It's right up there with Cats as one of the um, worst examples of how to make a movie. The first Suicide Squad movie, the one that James Gunn had no involvement in, the reason why James Gunn had to remake it in the first fucking place, when you watch that movie, it's full of what they call needle drops. And in in terms of cinema, needle drops are when a scene starts or a character shows up, they get their own song. Um, the notorious one is Sympathy for the Devil whenever John Goodman shows up. <laughs> you can see that in Flight. You can see that in many John Goodman graced scenes across cinema. It's kind of It became a thing for a couple of years there, a way that like everybody kind of knew and nobody was comfortable with, but also it was always cool whenever it happened. <laughs> and... In Suicide Squad, they use needle drops really liberally and really incorrectly. And if I had to guess what they were trying to accomplish with their needle drops, it's probably something along the lines of what Air Gear does accomplish. When they want a, when they want a scene to feel melancholy and sad, they have a specific song they needle drop. When they have a scene that they want to feel triumphant. They have a specific needle drop. They needle drop the... They do the thing that... Um, that... Uh, Full Metal Alchemist does really expertly in that they needle drop the end scene like 20... Like maybe a, a handful of seconds before the ending comes. So you as a viewer know, oh, this episode is ending... But also, it always feels somatic, and it always feels like it belongs there. And that is a, like, credit to the animation direction. It is a credit to the, like, craft of this show. Whoever was the sound engineer for this show knew exactly what they were doing, regardless of the oddities of the animation, or regardless of the like, shakiness of the way they deal with the story, it feels like those needle drops feel intentional and do what they're there to do, and that makes them so much more important and really enjoyable. Um, So much so that I'm going to struggle figuring out what song I want to put at the end of this because there are a bunch of great, there's one in particular one that's just like a dirty, awesome, like funky thing that I might want to put as an end scene for the episode. But we'll see how that goes. And 
like, this whole show is a mixed bag because you're dealing with a the whole thing altogether is under including the OVA, the all all five I believe OVAs is under. It might only be three OVAs. It might only be four OVAs because I think the um, Break on Sky OVA is. Let me just double check. I think it's three episodes actually. I don't think it's four even. Um, but yeah, it's only three episodes. But the um the so we're only dealing with thirty. With under 30 episodes for a manga that is now 37 volumes. They're never going to cram that much in. And what happens to the story, unfortunately, is they tell, a pretty, they tell the story pretty straightforward. Like, the way they rearrange events. They almost, it feels like they do it for the benefit of the audience, which I kind of appreciate. But it also means that they only get so far. In the story, they only make it to a certain point, and then you, you as a viewer, are kind of SOL. And what you ha- end up having to do is go on Google and being like, "What chapter is the end of the Air Gear man- at the end of the Air Gear manga in the anime?" And it tells you, and you continue on from there. But that, but by doing that, you miss out on the deeply exemplary art of the original volumes that the um, anime covered because the art, once again, they're in the same way that they're only just now doing justice to JoJo's. It might still be a couple years before they can truly do justice to something like Air Gear because it's that daunting and that full of motion in a way that it would just it would just take too, too much time to do in animation like we don't have that kind of time yo on top of that this was animated by Toei Animation where I believe um I think Tenjo Tenge might have been done by like Madhouse or something like Tenjo Tenge was done by a significantly more talent rich animation environment than this was and you can and not that I'm saying that like the animators of Air Gear are untalented they had a tall order but the animators of Tenjo Tenge like baseball bat knocked that shit out of the park in a way that just didn't happen with Air Gear and that happens sometimes every once in a while you oops make a phoenix right <laughs> Um, which if you've never seen the Phoenix Wright anime, it's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> it's bad. Um, and I, I believe the, the, um, the, the OVA, the like full OVA, the Break on, Sky, Break on the Sky OVA, um, came out in 2011 so I wonder what would happen now in the like era of CG anime. What Air Gear could what it 
could be possible for a property like Airgear. I do, they took two stabs at this thing, and the Break on Sky OVA was notoriously low, low viewership full of weirdos like me, so I can't imagine that they would... Um, they that anybody would like look at this and be like, yeah, we're gonna take a chance on this big, big weird thing again, but you never know. They could run out of stuff. Um, but it's just the whole thing has this has this vibe that it's like it's just it's just a good show to vibe to, regardless of its like on screen quality. It has it retain. There was so much, like, there was so much of the vibe that was in Jet Set Radio in the original manga for Air Gear that made it onto the screen in the anime that, regardless of what's lost from the translation from manga to anime, it still has that vibe. It still has that, like, punk kids on battery-powered roller skates vibe that Ograte was going for. And is it the greatest thing? No. It's, it, it has moments where it's just bad. But those moments where it's just bad are probably also part of Ograte's dick. Because Ograte is kind of is kind of goofy in moments. He is certainly deeply sexual in moments. He has a deep appreciation for a lot of naked ladies in his stories. Um, for joking purposes and serious purposes. And one of the things that... One of the things that's nice about anti-manga is they don't need to sidestep the like relationship aspect of relationships. It a lot of romance anime function like rom coms, like rom com movies, in that they can't at least the main couple oftentimes can't be deeply already in love in a way that like you can't relate to. Um, there's a great manga called Spotted Flowers that's from the same mangaka who made Genshiken. And if I had to guess, it's about um, Ogiwe and um, the main character of Genshiken um, years after they've gotten married. And it's great because it's this very low-stress kind of manga where everybody knows what's going on and like every like everything consensual everything's understood and it's it's about it's about people in a relationship it's not about the start of a relationship because part of the problem with and I'm saying this for a reason I'll get to it in a second part of the problem with Romance in shows, in in rom-coms, it has a little bit of a um, Uncle Ben dying effect after you've seen it enough times. And that, like, you always want to see 
you always want to watch you you everybody loves spider-man but everybody also is kind of annoyed the third time they see uncle ben die (laughs) they just are they want spider-man but everybody knows at this point the with great power comes great responsibility speech and like everything that leads up to that and there are variations on it but it's all kind of the same and that's true of meat cutes too so one of the superpowers of porn is and this was a joke that people that people often say is like oh you want to know what happens after the kiss the end of the movie that's what porn is for <laughs> but in a way that's pretty true that because the reason you're not see you don't op, you don't see the kind of passion you can experience in a, the full range of passion that's possible to experience in a relationship is because you can't put that on television, yo. You can't put that out in theaters. It would just they would just call it porn. But once you've crossed over that line, you can do whatever you want. And so Yes, there is the typical, like, love triangle, love square, love decohedron of a, like, messed up love story in something like, in Oh Great Stuff. But le- especially Air Gear. Less so Tenjo Tenge. Tenjo Tenge is like a deep... It's more like a line and less like a triangle. Like, this character loves this character, but this character loves this character. And it's like a straight line. And eventually, it becomes like a straight line between two characters for a while. But for the most part, it's a straight line. And and that's the interesting dynamic he goes with. But the... In, ten, in Air Gear, they have that triangle, but because Ograde is not shy about just, like, showing it all, letting it all hang out, he can go further with it in a way that, like, back when he was doing what he would, did with this manga and did with Tenjo Tenge, Echi Manga was not there yet. <laughs> Like, Echi Manga was not on Ogre's level at that point in most cases. It would get there with things like um, World's End Harem and all this other stuff that's come out recently, but it was not at the, like, Ogre levels of, like, waking up next to a naked girl or waking up naked next to a guy or the kind of, like, fetish material that he clearly does in his manga. That he clearly does in his manga. Because. Oh great. Was kind of of the people. Who brought that along with him. When he came from the Arrow manga scene. And. Seeing that in the form of anime. Is kind of like. Oh. This is the first step to getting something like. World's End Harem. On TV. At all. Like this is. Like we needed this to get that. In a real way. This is the first. This is the necessary first salvo. 
before someone attempts to go full interspecies reviewers. And there's value in that. Because all of the rules around, like, pornography and censorship and all this other bullshit, it's there for a reason, but it also leads you to have these stories that can't take that second step or have to be so careful and suggestive about taking that step that you get something like um, the sex scene in um, His and Her Circumstances, which you've never seen it, is like one minute they're at um, Arima's house together and the next minute, like, she's kind of loosely dressed with a towel and, like, he and they're both just hanging out and nobody's home except for them and they both seem kind of calm and contemplative. And you as the viewer know, oh, these kids fucked. But because of the kind of show it is, they couldn't even get close. They didn't probably didn't even really want to get close to that thing. To, to like showing that and expressing that in a way that's different. In, in any other way. And I have an appreciation for shows that are like, no, we're going we're gonna to straight up like... We're going to advance this very quickly. But also we're still going to play the etchy game. Because we're not allowed to have full on screen fucking on this. Because we live in a society. <laughs> and like I. This is way less. This has way less to say about society than... Tenjo Tenge does, and it's why I think Tenjo Tenge, as a thing, is more A, got more room to run, but B, is more um, appreciated by anime fans, because Tenjo Tenge is having a conversation about classism and, like, the in the world, but specifically in Japan, that resonates. The amount of stuff that they give you in Air Gear isn't having a conversation about classism. It's having a conversation about how people box themselves in. And it's having a conversation about the main character finding a way out of his box and finding a way out of his, like, dead-end life. Because before... E you see flashes of moments of what Iki was living like before he found air before he found air tracks. And by and large, it's not a good look. He he's going to a shitty high school who doesn't have the money for good teachers because one teacher is an insane super slut who used to go to that school too, and the other teacher has been working there forever. And it's just kind of fed up and doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Although he does care about the kids. Uh, Iki is in many ways kind of like Yusuke from Yu Yu Hakusho. He's kind of going nowhere fast with no way to go anywhere. With, to, to get any faster until he finds, in the same way that Yusuke does... Air tracks, and the way that, that um, 
Yusuke finds be, becomes a spirit detective, and that is is his kind of saving grace. That is kind of his thing that he that helps him grow up. Air ATs help Iki grow up. They give him something worth the effort of growing up. And I know it sounds odd, like what. Lots of us, after we've done the growing, after we are, like, in our 30s and have a real job, we look back at ourselves, and we look at younger versions of ourselves and we're like, why are you so immature? And oftentimes it's that no one's given that person something to care about enough where they put stuff aside, where they put their own bullshit aside, and they focus in and they do the work necessary to grow to like pursue whatever has taken them in that way and like lots of people lots of people shit on you know people for playing video games lots of people shit on people for watching anime but at the end of the day if life isn't giving you something better wouldn't you you should go out and find your own thing. You you should, like... And also, there are worse things you could fucking be doing. As my friend Lauren, hi Lauren, would say, you could be out shooting up drugs. And... In this show, there, in the anime more... In the um, manga more than the anime, they suggest that there's a professional league for ATs. Like there's this sports have evolved have like incorporated air tracks into how they're used. Like you can play rugby on air tracks. You can play football on air tracks. There's like an air tracks frisbee league that you see at some point. There's like air tracks tag and there's all these things that are that have evolved around the advancement of this technology. And so if you get really good, you can go mainstream and you can do what basketball often does, which is you can go from playing street ball to going and playing in a national on a, on a nationalized team. And that's a big deal and it's hard, but it's a goal you can achieve. In the same way that like once uh, that documentary came out, Part of the um, mission of Until the Wheels Fall Off was probably to show people like, hey, skateboarding is real. Skateboarding is a big deal. You know, it's in the Olympics. You can have a life as a skateboarder where you need to work without a doubt. You will need to work harder at that than you probably worked at anything in your life. But if you have that need in your soul, if you have that cavity in your heart that needs to be filled by sick tricks and grinds, then you can do it if you put your whole soul into it. And one of the, like, (laughs) one of the best parts of the last Olympics, which was an unmitigated fucking shit show, um, was the skateboarding part when you... If you could watch it. And if you can't, if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to go on YouTube and try and find clips from the skateboarding part of the Olympics. 
because it was deeply talented skateboarders skating on internationally televised broadcast. And there were moments in that competition where nothing was going well. Where it was, specifically the men's skateboarding section was soul crushing. (laughs) It was like they were annihilating themselves trying to land tricks and it just wasn't happening. And the but also the entire skate community was like, yeah, that's how that goes. <laughs> that's part of it. That's part of it. These are professional skateboarders. That's part of it. And then the women's section, there was a really interesting, um, and then I'll kind of wind it up here. In the women's section, there was a really interesting um, competitor. She was in her tw- she was in her twenties, and she was the oldest one there. She was like. Uh, uh, in her late 20s, like maybe 29 or something. And she just straight up had so much more experience than any of the other women on the in the Olympics for skateboarding. That like you could see them kind of pay deference to her and they were all kind of like fucked up and scared of her. And there was a moment when she attempted a trick that she didn't land. <laughs> And you felt, you felt from the broadcast in that, on that skate park, the vibe shift of everybody was like, oh, fuck. I hope she tries that again and doesn't land it. Because if she lands that perfectly, the game's over. We all go home. And she's a gold medalist. The, that didn't like she didn't end up landing that trick, and it never happened. But for a moment, the entire ju- like the entire judging panel, everybody at home watching, the audience, those all the skateboarders in the Olympics were like, "Oh fuck, she's straight up better than all of us at some at some on some core level." She's better than us. It's just true. And we just have to hope that she's not having a good day. (laughs) And this, in the same way that this, that the conceit of air gear gives real stakes to fucking up, to gives real danger to what these kids are doing with their motorized rollerblades, This show does a great job of being like, listen, this guy's just fucking better than you. <laughs> this guy's just better than you. He has something you don't. And that you won't have for like a couple years yet. And it it does that in the manga also. But just the addition of motion and the addition of like the awareness that the older characters in this show have is really great and it sets up a real feeling of stakes especially in the um behemoth arc of the show where it's serious that like these serious people are taking Iki seriously and you see that in all the characters they're like oh fuck like He's skating like he's been doing this for years. And he's only been doing this for a few months. 
Oh Jesus! Uh, by the middle point of the one, by almost the middle point of the show, there's a character who looks at his like aircraft usage data, and they're like, "So we're okay unless we let this kid jump ever, because we can't do that shit. Once he's in the air, we fucking lost. His maximum airtime is seventy. He's only been doing this for a few months. We've been doing it for, I've been doing it for longer. And my maximum airtime is like six. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it's in that moment that you see that like, not only did Iki need this, but he has a talent for it. He has that kind of rare combination that you see in somebody like Tony Hawk. And that's what really gives this series both the manga and the anime legs is that they recreate that like X game prodigy feeling. And that combined with the culture that pumped into every ounce of this property that combined with the incredible um, soundtrack would mean that even if this show isn't the best, even if I would give it like a four, I would say it's a four is worth your time because it's interesting. So definitely go check it out. It's available on Hulu. It should at some point be available on um, Crunchyroll because it was part of the Funimation catalog. But at the time of recording, the only place I could find it for stream was Hulu. So um, go check it out on Hulu if you are so inclined. And on that note, I have been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio. Um, new episodes of the show come out every Thursday and every other Sunday. Like I said, if you want a great example of what I'm trying to achieve with the Sunday, with the Thursday shows, go listen to the previous Thursday show all about um, Remake Our Life. And it's about creativity. It's about creativity through the lens of prof- of like the professional atmosphere and like the goods and the bads of that. So definitely go check that out. Um, I did, every once in a while, I do a rewind of something I've already covered, like Air Gear, because I get interested in it again and interested in it in either the same light, but stronger, or a new light. And Sunday editions are more metatextual, they're more about fandom. The last Sunday edition I did was about the closure of Cartoon Network and why that is important and why Cartoon Network as a concept is important. So definitely go listen to that. It's called um, Goodbye Cartoon Network. But um, it's called Sunday Edition Goodbye Cartoon Network. You should find it pretty easily in the feed of whatever podcast app you're using to listen to me right now. Um, And if you like the show, definitely subscribe to it. I try to be regular. I had a slip-up couple weeks ago where a Sunday edition didn't go out that should have um, but for the most part I am pretty religious about every Thursday and every other Sunday getting you something to listen to um, and share it with your friends and rate it and give it five stars if the podcast app of your choice allows that I will talk and I will talk to you next I think 
I think next Sunday. I think next Sunday. Yeah, I think Sunday. I think this Sunday is a Sunday edition. So I will talk to you on Sunday. But if I don't talk to you, but if it's not Sunday edition, I will talk to you on Thursday. Just to hide Just to hide Just to hide Just to hide